Well, good morning. Go ahead and make your way in as we uh, open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your uh, great love for us. Thank you for uh, the gift of, uh, of Scripture. And uh, thank you for the gift of your Spirit who uh, enlightens us and uh, is our helper. Thank you for the gift of, uh, of community that there have been uh, thousands upon thousands of saints who have gone before and have, have wrestled with uh, theology and we get to uh, stand on their shoulders. And so I pray that you would uh, keep us humble and keep us faithful. I pray that you'd help us this morning as we uh, seek to understand uh, ways that, uh, that some have, uh, have distorted the gospel. And, uh, and so I pray that you'd bless us this morning, we ask, because you're a good father who gives good gifts. So we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. We're all uh, year, we're talking about church history. And last week, uh, we discussed the birth of Christendom. And, uh, and we talked about the fact that the Roman Empire, uh, within a couple of, uh, of centuries, went from persecuting anyone who confessed Christ to basically persecuting anyone who didn't. Uh, we discussed uh, guys like the Emperor Constantine and uh, we discussed St. Patrick and St. Patrick's Day. We, we discussed the beginning of monasteries and, uh, and even how uh, some ancient baptistries were shaped like wombs, which prompted the question, what exactly is the shape of a womb? You should have been here uh, as we attempted to answer that. But this week we wanna talk about heresy. In particular, some of the first heresies that you'll see in the, uh, the first few centuries of the church. So let's begin uh, by defining what do we mean by the term heresy. When we use the word heresy, that is derived from the, uh, the Greek word heresies, which originally wasn't uh, actually pejorative or negative in meaning. It just meant some sort of division between particular schools or traditions. So for example, the uh, historian Josephus used it to refer to the various sects of, uh, of Judaism, uh, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Those were different heresies or parties or schools or divisions of the Jews. And so this word uh, heresies even appears in scripture with this sort of neutral meaning a number of times. You see it in Acts uh, 517, which I won't read, but it's there uh, in your notes. The word uh, party there is heresy. So the term was originally rather neutral, but eventually there is this gradual shift in the usage of the term where it begins to take on these obviously uh, negative connotations. So you see that in Galatians 5.20 where uh, Paul is listing the works of the flesh and he mentions idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, and then the word heresies or as it's translated in the ESV, divisions. You see it also in 2 Peter 2.1, and this is more the way that we tend to use it today, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And so this pejorative uh, use also applies to a related word, hereticos, from which we get the word heretic. You see it in Titus 3.10, as for a person who stirs up Division, literally there, it's anthropos hereticos, the heretic man. As for that person, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. And then you see a similar idea, although the, the, the word heresies or uh, the word her hereticos is not used, you see a similar idea in Romans 16 and Galatians 1. Romans 16, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and to create obstacles contrary to the gospel that you have been taught, avoid them. 
Or Galatians 1.9, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. So over time, you see this word heresy or, or the word hereticos come to be used not merely of schools or traditions within Christianity, but of teachers and of traditions uh, and teachings which had divided and departed from Christianity. Notice the intensity of Paul's language in these passages. He says to watch out for such persons. He says to avoid them. He says to consider them accursed. But here's the question, if we're going to do that, if we're gonna watch out for, if we're going to uh, avoid them, if we're gonna consider them accursed, as the Bible commands, we need some way of actually identifying heresy. After all, there are lots of different divisions within the church. For example, you have Roman Catholicism, you have Eastern Orthodoxy, you have Protestantism, and even within Protestantism, you have all the various denominations. You have Baptists and Presbyterians and Reformed and Methodists and so forth. So does the Bible saying that we should avoid Presbyterians? No, that's not what it's saying. It is instead talking about Heresy, these uh, fundamental sort of things. So this, uh, this analogy might be helpful. Think about the difference between uh, a border between states and borders between countries. If you were to drive east from here, uh, you would eventually get to a border uh, and uh, you would reach uh, Louisiana. And in order to enter Louisiana, you have to leave Texas. Now, why you would ever do that, I don't know, but imagine you have some sort of good reason for doing so. And as you do, you notice there's actually a lot of differences between Texas and Louisiana. There's economic, there are geographic differences, there are even cultural differences, especially Cajun culture and those Duck Dynasty guys and so forth. Nevertheless, you can travel back and forth between Texas and Louisiana without much hassle at all because they're both states within America. That's kind of like denominational differences between uh, Methodists and Baptists and so forth on things like baptism and church structure and so forth. But now imagine that you were to drive north to Canada or drive south to Mexico. You can't just drive back and forth. Instead, you have to stop at the border, you show a passport, you get asked a bunch of questions. Why? Because you aren't simply moving within the country, but rather you're leaving the country. That's kind of like heresy. You've left the church at that point. When you reject certain doctrines, you reject God himself and the gospel, that's heresy. So when we're talking about heresy uh, this morning and then really all throughout the year, keep that in mind. We're not talking about these, uh, these secondary or tertiary issues. We're not talking about denominational distinctions like the mode of baptism or ecclesiology or something like that. We're talking about first order fundamental doctrines, Trinity, deity of Christ, resurrection of Christ. And since we're talking about these borders, uh, of Christianity, the implication is that if you were to hold these heresies, if you're to confess these heresies, then, then you therefore undermine, you reject the very God of Scripture. So lots of doctrines divide Christians from other Christians, but heresy divides Christians from non-Christians, from Mormons, from Jehovah's Witnesses, from atheists, from Hindus, from Muslims, etc. But why is this important, right? Why are we going about this? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, because we just read a couple of passages that says it, it, the scripture explicitly warns us against the dangers of false teaching. It gives us commands that we are to follow in regards to heresy. It tells us how we are to respond to heresy and to heretics. So that's the first reason we're doing it. A second reason is because heresies have profound implications for our understanding of God 
and the gospel. And yet the problem is they're often disguised. They're often hard to spot. They're often subtle. Heresies are kind of like the Trojan horse of theology. They look great. They look like this really nice thing, but there's deadly destructive doctrine hidden inside. So that's the second reason that we want to look at it. And the third reason is because heresies never really die. We'll see this over and over again. They're like weeds. They go dormant for seasons, but they're really hard to kill. So we'll see over and over and over again throughout this year, these same heresies pop up in the church. You'll see legalism, you'll see dualism, you'll see subordinationism that we'll talk about today, you'll see humanism. We'll see each of these in the early church as we talk about today. We'll see them again in the Middle Ages. You'll see them in the Enlightenment. You see them even in our contemporary culture. You have neighbors who believe these. Even neighbors who go to churches who believe these. You have even, quote, Christian pastors who preach some of these things. But again, today we want to focus on the particular heresies that emerge in the early church. But why heresies? Why do heresies even exist in the first place? There's a number of ways that you can answer that question of why heresies exist. First, you could just answer it theologically and just simply say, demons delight in false doctrine. So of course there's going to be heresy. That's one way you can answer it. A second way you can answer it is you could kind of try to look at it historically and contextually. There's all these things happening in the early church that make it ripe for heresy. All right, what's happening in the first few centuries of the church? Well, the gospel is spreading more quickly than pastors and elders can be adequately trained. The Bible at this point hasn't been unified and distributed. They don't have a bound leather copy that they can uh, uh, look at or own individually. There's sporadic persecution that's breaking out. There's technological limitations that make it really difficult to converse quickly. There's not yet been any sort of consensus in the form of these ecumenical imperial councils and universal creeds to establish boundaries of belief. So it stands to reason that there's going to be a lot of confusion uh, in regards to theology. So that's a second reason why heresies exist and why they're so common in the early church. But a third reason, a final way that you can answer that question of why heresy exists, especially within the early church, is to understand what heretics are doing. To kind of put yourself in their shoes for a second. And here's the phrase that I want you to remember when it comes to what heretics are doing. In general, they are minimizing the mystery. That's what they're doing. They're minimizing the mystery. Heretics are attempting to minimize the mystery. In fact, Alistair McGrath says that this is part of the definition of heresy. He defines heresy as a doctrine that ultimately destroys, destabilizes, or distorts a mystery rather than preserving it. Since many of the, uh, the early heresies concerned the Trinity, let's use that as an example. For the first few, few centuries of the church, the church is constantly wrestling with how do we understand the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? How do you take all of these various points of biblical data, how do you put all of the pieces of the puzzle together in a way that's actually consistent and helpful? And when we talk about that relationship today, we use the word Trinity, and by that we mean that in the Godhead there is tri-unity. There is unity, and there's plurality, and there's equality, and how those all overlap, how, the, how all of those simultaneously exist is somewhat shrouded in mystery. There's unity, there's diversity or plurality, there's equality, but then there's also a degree of mystery. But what heresy does is it attempts to minimize that mystery. 
It attempts to remove the mystery. So some Trinitarian heresies will emphasize the unity of God, the oneness of God, to the neglect of his threeness, to the neglect of the plurality or the diversity within the Godhead. Others will emphasize that plurality to the neglect of the unity. But what each individual heresy is doing is attempting to reduce that mystery by emphasizing one truth to the neglect or the detriment of another. And that's not only true when it comes to Trinitarian heresies. That's true also of Christological heresies that we'll study in a few weeks. Some of them stress the deity of Christ to the neglect of his humanity. Others stress his humanity to the neglect of his deity. Or other heresies stress man's responsibility in a way that negates God's sovereignty or vice versa. All right, so heretics are generally not trying to just completely dismiss the Bible. They're not trying to just completely dismiss the Bible. They're trying to reduce the mystery and confess some truths to the neglect or detriment of others. You need to understand this, that heretics generally don't think that they're heretics. In fact, they're often quite sincere. They're sincerely wrong, but they're sincere nonetheless. They aren't trying to destroy the church. They're actually trying to help the church. And that's important for you to recognize as uh, we go through uh, this year talking about things. They're trying to help the church, but in doing so, they actually make things worse. It reminds me of a story that Carl tells. I'm not sure if he's actually told it on stage or not, but uh, he tells this story about a guy who came over to uh, his house to help him with a uh, problem with his shower. And this guy was a plumber's assistant or assistant plumber, assistant to the plumber or something like that. And, uh, and so this guy had some training and he comes over to help Carl with his, uh, with his shower, but he forgot to shut off the main water valve beforehand. So he's working on it and all of a sudden water is gushing out. And uh, so this guy just decides to solve the problem by just pushing his hand against the wall. So now instead of there being this river of water that's just falling innocently into the tub, it's now going everywhere because it's hitting his hand and splashing out everywhere. And so it's getting uh, in the, on the floors, it's getting on the walls, the baseboards and so forth. In fact, uh, Carl had to uh, call in a professional water restoration team to come and clean the house because of the inches of water that filled the room. That's kind of the image of a heretic. Some pastor quote unquote, tries to quote unquote fix a quote unquote problem and just ends up making things worse. So what are some of the examples from the early church that we're gonna talk about today? I'm gonna mention seven heresies today. Docetism, Gnosticism, Marcionism, Montanism, Modalism, Adoptionism, and Arianism. We'll start with uh, two different dualistic heresies called Docetism and Gnosticism. Now, obviously, we actually encounter the first heresies uh, uh, in, uh, in church history uh, in Scripture. We, encourage, uh, we encounter things like legalism with the Judaizers, the Judaizers who are teaching works righteousness by demanding adherence to Mosaic law. But after that, the first heresies that we encounter are forms of dualism. And we see these as early as the first century. In fact, we actually see hints in the scriptures of the apostles combating dualism as people are denying the resurrection and the incarnation and so forth. We talked about that a little bit as we walked through 1 John a couple of years ago. So what is dualism? Well, dualism is just a broad category for a number of heresies that are all influenced by Platonic worldview. 
What is a platonic worldview? Well, when I say the word platonic, we tend to think of the, uh, the, the, uh, the phrase platonic relationships, which are relationships between the sexes that are strictly friends. But technically, the meaning is actually that the relationship is non-sexual, that it's non-physical, because platonic thought is influenced by Plato. Plato the philosopher, not Plato the molding clay. And Plato thought, uh, taught this division between the form and the ideal. In simple terms, he taught a division between the material and the immaterial, between the physical and the spiritual. And in Plato's conception, the spiritual, the immaterial is good, the physical, the material is bad. So the, the spiritual immaterial world is, uh, is superior to the physical uh, material world. So back to the use of platonic relationships today. The idea is that a non-physical, a non-sexual friendship or a non-sexual relationship is better than a physical or a sexual affection. In other words, contrary to what we think today and uh, Facebook and so forth, it's actually good to be in a friend zone. That's kind of platonic thought. Now, Plato was one of the leading thinkers of, the Western, uh, of Western philosophy, so his ideas exerted profound influence on Greco-Roman culture. So I want you to think of platonic thought or Platonism as a river. And it's flowing through the Roman Empire. It's flowing through all of Greco-Roman uh, culture. And as it flows along, it eventually flows into the sea of Christian thought as Christianity is spreading throughout the empire. And where that river joins the sea, there is this mixture of fresh and salt water. There's this mixture of clear and not so clear water. And the result is often this muddy Mess, And that's what happens in these dualistic heresies like Gnosticism and Docetism. They're the result of the attempt to merge Platonic thought and Christianity. Both Docetism and Gnosticism are dualistic because they, can, they attempt to drive this wedge between the spiritual and the physical as these dual competing realities. You see, in Christianity, we believe there is a spiritual realm and there's a physical realm. But in Platonic thought, there's, uh, they're viewed as competing versus compatible and, uh, and complementary. So that which is immaterial, that which is spiritual is good, that which is physical is bad. Again, remember uh, the role of Plato. And this is a problem from a Christian perspective because the Bible says that God created the world and that it was good, not bad. And the Bible teaches that God became flesh in Christ and that Christ died a physical death, and that our eternal hope is not this disembodied, immaterial existence where we float around like angels and strum harps, but rather that we actually receive a resurrected body and we live on a new earth. So creation and incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection, all of those are negated or uh, redefined in these dualistic heresies like docetism and Gnosticism. So docetism is from the Greek word dikeo, which means to seem or to appear. Because according to docetic thought, Jesus did not really have a true human body. Jesus wasn't really human, he merely appeared. He merely seemed to be human. He seemed to possess physicality, but it was, uh, it was an illusion. It was this good magic trick. The Son of God was divine and therefore totally good. He couldn't be human because human means physical. 
And physical is bad, so Jesus just appeared to be human. So think of docetism kind of like uh, uh, the, uh, the myth of Superman, right? Uh, Clark Kent, he, he, he looks, he sounds human, but he isn't. It's a mirage, that's docetism. Gnosticism, on the other hand, is this related heresy from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, because Gnosticism promoted the idea of a secret knowledge. Gnosticism was the secret code. You have the secret handshake, uh, special knowledge that only a few possess. And you might be familiar with Gnosticism. You might have heard of it uh, before by the conspiracy theories of like Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code or the movie starring Tom Hanks. You might be familiar with the lost writings, quote unquote, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Judas and so forth. When someone talks about books that were left out by a conspiracy uh, of the early church, suppressed from the Bible, they're typically referring to these, quote, Gnostic gospels. Unfortunately, Gnosticism is not just one heresy. It's actually a collection of related heresies promoted by guys such as Serenthus and Valentinus. And that's really unfortunate because it makes summary of all these various streams really difficult. But here's the gist according to most Gnostics. This is kind of what most Gnostics believed. Number one, there is a God who exists as a spirit. All right, so far, so good. That's basically where our agreement with Gnosticism ends, though, because they say, uh, immediately beginning to go off the tracks, they say that that God has various emanations of lesser gods. So think of this one God, and then he begins to have these emanations of these sort of lesser gods that move along. And those lesser gods are actually lesser gods. They're JV gods. They're kind of like little spirit babies. Unfortunately, each emanation is going to be slightly inferior to the previous god, kind of like a Xerox machine. As it makes a subsequent copy, it's going to become less clear. And somewhere down the line of gods, you have this one god named Yahweh. All right, sometimes he's also known as the Demiurge, which sounds really cool, but it's not. Because Demiurge, or Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, was a very naughty God. Why was he naughty? Because he created the earth. Why was that bad? Remember Platonic thought, because the earth is physical, and anything that's physical is bad. And so the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, is one of these further emanations. He's not the actual superior God. He's not the only God. In fact, he is a lesser God than the true God. All right, what about Jesus? In, in Gnostic thought, Jesus was just a man. He's a pretty good, wise man. But after his baptism, Christ, which is one of these spirit emanations, descended upon him and empowered him to preach and perform miracles. So you have the man Jesus, which is just distinguished from the divine Christ. In fact, in some Gnostic teachings, when it comes to the crucifixion, while the man Jesus is being crucified, the divine Christ actually leaves Jesus and he's sitting at, at a distance somewhere else on another hill and he's laughing. He's laughing at the folly of people thinking that they could possibly kill him, all right? Uh, and, uh, and who's the hero of the story? Well, according to some Gnostic myths, the hero of the story is actually Judas. Why? Because only he understood that the Christ was trapped in Jesus' body. And the only way to release him was through death. See, all this time, you didn't know Judas was actually the good guy. So now all you pregnant moms can name your kids Iscariot. 
So think of Gnosticism as this kind of collusion of various philosophical and theological streams. You have Platonic thought, you have these pagan mystery religions, and then you have a dash of Christianity. Or really, it's just straight up Platonic paganism stealing Christian language. Pagan wolves in sheep's clothing. And you can see little hints of Gnosticism even in our culture today, especially in the sexual revolution, where it doesn't really matter what your body says that you are. What's your body? That's not authoritative. Biology and nature, they aren't authoritative. What is authoritative? Well, your spirit, your feelings and so forth. That's the real you. You don't look to some external authority for redemption, you look within. That's the echo of Gnosticism that we hear even today in our culture. Or you see at any time there's this sort of hidden truth that no other Christian has ever figured out Jared met with a, a bunch of guys a couple of weeks ago. He might mention this in an upcoming uh, teaching. And these guys said that they had the key to unify the church. The key that no one else had had. Now these guys were like 21 or something like that, which explains something. No offense if you're 21. But they also said, Jesus isn't God. All right, so not only did they hold this heretical view of God and of Jesus, they also had this Gnostic view of knowledge and salvation. By the way, the next uh, week, that same group of guys that had lunch with, uh, with Jared showed up at multiple other churches in the area and tried to rush the stage, and they were eventually arrested. So not only will heresy take you to hell, but sometimes to jail. So that's Gnosticism, that's Docetism, both of which are dualistic. Another early dualistic heresy is Marcionism. I want to single him out, though, because of the specific influence of Marcion, who the uh, martyred bishop Polycarp called the firstborn of Satan. So you know he's a good guy. All right, Marcionism. This was a second century dualistic heresy named after Marcion, who was born in uh, AD 85 in Pontus in what is now uh, Turkey. And he was the son of a bishop, all right? An example of the danger of being a, a PK, a pastor's kid. Unlike most pastor's kid, though, Marcion was very wealthy, unless you're the kid of a prosperity gospel preacher or something. He was said to have given a gift of 100 years of wages to the church in Rome. And the problem was that Marcion was a heretic. He refused to believe that the God of the Old Testament was the same as the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Marcion really loved the idea of a loving God. He couldn't believe in a God of wrath and justice. So what did he do? Well, he just simply threw away the Old Testament. He threw away the Old Testament and he made his own New Testament by throwing out most of the Gospels. In fact, he just kept a truncated version of Luke's Gospel. And then for the rest of the New Testament, he selectively edited most of Paul's epistles. And when all the cutting and the pasting was done, Marcion had the Christianity he wanted and the God he wanted and the gospel he wanted. He had this God of sugar and spice and everything nice and nothing else. This message of inspiring morals and a Bible that does away with all the uncomfortable bits about God's wrath and hell and dogma and rules and so forth. And as we've mentioned, heresy never really dies. It's like a weed that goes dormant for a season. So think of how similar Marcionism is to a lot of teaching that you see today. People ignoring the Old Testament. People who contrast the, the quote-unquote angry God of the Old Testament with the gracious God of the New Testament. Or people finding the idea of an angry God at all distasteful. Or red-letter Christianity 
with the idea that some parts of the Bible are more inspired, they're more authoritative than others, as if the words of the Spirit in Matthew are more authoritative than the words of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians, or people who hate dogma, people who hate rules. That's New Age Marcionism. So in Marcionism, you see not only this heretical doctrine of God, but also a deficient doctrine of revelation. And you'll see a similar deficiency in our next heresy, which is called Montanism, which was named after the early heretic, Hannes Montanus, just kidding. His name was actually Montanus. And Montanus claimed he was converted in 155 AD, and he began to prophesy. And as a result of his prophesy, he, uh, prophecy, he said that he was possessed by the Spirit. In fact, he said that his conversion was the beginning of a new age. The Old Testament was the age of the Father, and then there was the age of the Son, but now he ushered in the age of the Spirit. So that didn't begin with the resurrection and, uh, and Pentecost, it actually began with Montanus. In other words, Montanus had a bit of an ego. Last week we saw that Constantine named the capital city Constantinople and a child after himself. Now we see Montanus named the entire church age after himself. And in this age of the spirit, there is this increased obsession with dreams and visions and prophetic revelations. Kind of like in hyper-charismatic circles today with guys like Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn and so forth. And in effect, what Montanus does is he makes the son secondary to the spirit. He made the death and resurrection of Christ not the consummation of God's redemptive plan, but merely one more step toward himself. And Montanus himself in his ministry was the consummation of God's redemptive plan. He also promoted legalism as this new age was to be characterized by a more rigorous moral life. So think of kind of de degrees of morality, which each stage in, uh, in redemptive history becoming more and more morally serious. In the Old Testament, you have the Mosaic law, and that's serious. But then in the age of Christ and the age of the Son, you have the Sermon on the Mount with all of its commands, that's a higher ethic, right? Jesus says, you have heard that it's, uh, it is said, do not murder, but I say to you that if you're angry, you've committed murder. So you have this higher ethic, according to Montanus. And then in his age, in the age of the spirit ushered in by Montanus, you have an even higher ethic of morality, which actually was legalistic. So my favorite seminary professor, John Hanna, describes Montanism as a second and third century restorationist movement within the church, Montanus believed that the church was becoming morally lax and needed to return to the primitive ideals and practices, including an emphasis on healing, continual revelation, and perhaps tongues. Notice that restorationist movement idea. That's something that we'll see throughout church history. Following the history of Israel, as the church is going to grow, she's going to become more arrogant, she's going to become more self-indulgent. And so there are various attempts at reformation along the way, but typically those attempts don't just correct the problem, they actually swing the pendulum too far in the opposite direction. They overreact, they overcorrect. We saw this last week with the growth of monasticism, for example. The church grows morally lax, and so many simply left the church altogether, went out into the desert all alone to sit on a spire or something like that. So Montanism is another one of these overreactions. But the fact that it was an attempt at restoration 
also had an interesting side effect and that it influenced the church father, Tertullian. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago. Tertullian was, uh, wrote one of the most significant books combating heresy in the early church. And yet he later converted to Montanism because he was so frustrated with the declining morals that he saw in the church. So that's Montanism. Let's talk now about a couple of what are called monarchianistic heresies. Monarchianistic heresies, modalism and adoptionism. Now, modalism and adoptionism are very, very different. You need to know that. But they both fit under the umbrella of what's called monarchianism. All right, you see the word monarch in there uh, because monarchianism is the idea of the solitary rule of God. By that, it simply means uh, it, it rules out the plurality and diversity of God and stresses the unity of God. It denies the diversity within God. So uh, as we talked about, what, what heresies are doing is they're seeking to minimize the mystery. And so what these monarchianistic heresies are doing is they're seeking to minimize the mystery by denying plurality in the Godhead or denying diversity in the Godhead and just simply uh, emphasizing the unity of, uh, of God. And so there's two forms of it, modalistic monarchianism, also known as modalism, and dynamic monarchianism, also known as adoptionism. Let's talk about modalistic monarchianism, also known as modalism. It's called modalism, given the, uh, the idea that God exists not in three persons, but one person. That one person who simply reveals himself in three different modes, that's why it's called modalism. Three different modes or manifestations, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's also known as Sibelianism, uh, after one of the major uh, teachers, Sibelius, and then also Patrapassionism. Uh, we'll talk about that here, here in a second. But as, as mentioned earlier, heretics are driven by this desire to smooth things out, to minimize the mystery. And they're often driven by this, th these particular fears that they have. So modalists in particular are driven by the fear of tritheism. They think if you stress that there is any sort of diversity, or any sort of plurality in the Godhead by talking about different persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you end up with three different gods. So they swing the pendulum, they overcorrect, and they stress the unity to the neglect of the plurality. And so major proponents of modalism include Sibelius, that's why this is also known as Sibelianism, Noetus, and Praxius, and they all lived in the late second to early third century. So the key idea, the, the big idea of modalism is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all the same person. Not just the same God, they're the same person. And that God reveals himself in different ways at different times. Sometimes he reveals himself as Father, sometimes he reveals himself as Son, sometimes Spirit. But the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are simply three distinct manifestations or modes, modalism, of that person. So listen to what Noetus a modalist said, father and son so-called are one and the same, not one individual produced from a different one, but himself from himself. And that he is styled by name, father and son, according to vicissitude of time. So the distinction is just one of name, just one of terminology. Or praxis, one cannot believe in one only God in any other way than by saying that the father, the son, and the Holy Ghost are the very self-same person. Or Tertullian, who wrote against modalism, this is what he says that they say. He says this of Praxius. Praxius says that the father himself came down into the virgin and was himself born of her. Himself suffered, the father, 
indeed was himself Jesus Christ. So Praxis did two pieces of the devil's work in Rome. He drove out prophecy and he brought in heresy. He put to flight the paraclete, that's the helper, the Holy Spirit, and he crucified the Father. That's why it's called Patra Passionism. Patra from Father, Passionism from suffering. The Father suffered on the cross since the Father and the Son are the same person, right? That's Modalism, as uh, Herman Bovink, the great reform th- uh, thinker of the early 20th century wrote, Sabellianism, like Arianism, which we'll talk about shortly, may appear in different forms. Like Arianism, it denies the threeness present in the divine being, but unlike Arianism, it now seeks to secure the oneness, not by placing the Son and the Spirit outside the divine being, but by so absorbing them into it that all distinctions among the three persons melt away. All right, and again, modalism will be condemned by the church, but it doesn't die. Instead, it evolves, and we see it today. You see it in oneness Pentecostalism. Uh, you see it in many proponents of the prosperity gospel. You know where else you see it? Anytime you hear someone pray, Father, thank you for dying for us. That's patripatchianism. That's modalism. Maybe some of you need to take a moment and repent for some of your prayers in the past. That's modalism. Or another place that you see it is just about any time someone seeks to describe the Trinity using some sort of analogy. For example, the Trinity is like a man. He's a husband, he's a father, he's an architect, whatever it might be. Or the Trinity is like water, which exists in three forms. What are those three forms? Water, ice, spirit. Raise your hand if you've ever heard one of those analogies, right? That's modalism. In fact, every analogy that you use to describe the the Trinity explicitly or typically ends up confessing some ancient heresy. The Trinity is not like a shamrock or an egg. Those are errors known as partialism. The Trinity is not like the sun and its heat and its light. That's Arianism. And it isn't like water, steam, and ice. As a funny YouTube video would say, that's modalism, Patrick. Now, I'm not saying that if you've ever uh, thanked the Father for dying for you, or you've ever explained the, the, the Trinity to your child using one of these analogies, that you're damned as a heretic or something like that. But I am saying that we should aim for our prayers and we should aim for our explanations to be as faithful as possible. And where we see that they're not, we should repent. In fact, that's the difference between a heretic and a, and a genuine Christian who's simply ignorant. When the Christian hears the truth better explained, They repent, whereas the heretic doubles down on his views. But that's modalistic monarchianism, also known as modalism. Let's talk about the next form of monarchianism, dynamic monarchianism, also known as adoptionism. But you see the word dynamic in there, that's from the Greek dunamis, which means power, refers to Jesus' miracles. In particular, according to adoptionism, that Jesus did these miracles not in his own power, but in the power of the true God because Jesus was not God, but we'll get to that. First, a few proponents. Uh, In the late second to third century, you have guys like Theodotus of Byzantium, who according to tradition taught that Jesus was a mere man, born of a virgin, according to the counsel of a father, and that after he had lived among all men and had become preeminently religious, he subsequently at his baptism in the Jordan received Christ who came from above and descended in the form of a dove. So you have Theodotus of Byzantium. You also have Paul of Samosata, a bishop of Antioch. 
And he thought that uh, Christ is not God who became man, but he was a man who progressively matured to the status of divinity, all right? And then you also have Lucian. Lucian is known as the teacher of Arius. You see, bad teachers produce bad students. That's why we only let Jared teach a couple of times a semester. Totally kidding. He's a great teacher. All right. The key idea of adoptionism or dynamic monarchianism is that Jesus was just a good man. He was just a good man who was eventually adopted and empowered by God, but he wasn't the eternal son of God. So you see some sort of overlap with Gnosticism. If docetism is kind of like Superman, adoptionism is kind of like the story of Spider-Man, right? Peter Parker, he's just this nerd. He gets bit by a radioactive spider and all of a sudden he gets these great powers. Well, that's adoptionism in the, the, the DC universe. The, Jesus is just this great man or a good man until his baptism, at which point he becomes God in some sense. And as I'm sure you've guessed, adoptionism tries to reduce the mystery of the Trinity. How does it do so? Well, does it sacrifice unity or diversity? Well, it sacrifices unity and equality. Jesus is not co-equal. He's not co-eternal with the Father. Jesus, according to adoptionism, is a created being who becomes divine at some time, in some sense, rather than what Orthodox Christians confess, which is that Jesus is the divine Son of God. He's co-equal. He's co-eternal with the Father. He's the second person of the Trinity in the very womb. And the last heresy that we want to talk about, probably the most influential, is Arianism, which is named for Arius, who lived about 256 to 336 and worked as a priest in Alexandria. Look at the, the, the picture there, handsome little devil, more devil than handsome. I don't want to encourage you to judge a heretic by his looks, but you can just tell with this one. What is it that drives, what drives Arius? Well, Arius is really afraid of modalism. He's really afraid that this kind of denigrates the unique glory of the Father. So he goes to Scripture, as most heretics do, by the way. The question isn't who reads the Bible, but who reads the Bible correctly? And he reads the Bible and he sees that Jesus is the wisdom of God. We read that last week in 1 Corinthians. We'll actually see it again this morning in 1 Corinthians. And then he remembers something. He remembers that Proverbs says that God created wisdom. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Proverbs says that God created wisdom. So bells go off. He puts two and two together, but he gets five because he says this must mean then that Christ is created. So then he goes back to the New Testament and he reads things like Jesus is the firstborn of all creation and so voila, you have the Arian heresy. Let me give you a couple of his, or one quote by him and one quote about him. This is by him, the son, timelessly begotten by the father, created, notice that word, created and established before all ages, did not exist prior to his begetting but was timelessly begotten before all things. He alone was given existence directly by the Father, for he is not eternal or co-eternal or equally self-sufficient with the Father. That's Arius. This is what Athanasius, the great church father, we'll talk about him in a couple of weeks, uh, said about Arius. He says that Arius taught that God was not always a father. There was a time when God was all alone and was not yet a father. Not only, uh, only later did he, he become a father. The son did not always exist. Everything created is out of nothing. So the logos of God came into existence out of nothing. There was a time when he was not. Before he was brought into being, he did not exist. He also had a beginning 
to his created existence. Now, Arius would probably quibble with that quote a bit. He wouldn't say that there was a time when Christ was not, since Christ was created before time was created, but the point is the same. Let's talk about some of the key points of Arianism. The first is this is called subordinationism. Subordinationism. The idea is that the Son is subordinate to the Father in his very essence. The Son is unlike the Father. And the Father existed before the Son, but at that point, the Father wasn't a Father because he didn't yet have a Son. And so the Son is a creature, he's created and not creator. And as a result of that, the Son can't fully know the Father because no creature can fully comprehend the Creator. And whenever you see the title of son and the language of Lord applied to Christ in scripture, that's honorific rather than theologically uh, precise. And so uh, Bovink says this about Arianism, the essence of Arianism is its denial of the son's consubstantiality with the father. In other words, it's assertion that the father alone uh, and in an absolute sense is the one true God. It follows, of course, that the son is a being of inferior rank that he does not share in the divine nature. Arianism places the son somewhere between God and the created universe and allows a wide margin of interpretation with respect to the exact place he occupies. The distance between God and the world is infinite. And at any point on this span, a place may be assigned to the son from a place on the throne next to God down to a position alongside creatures, angels, or humans. This accounts for the fact that Arianism has appeared in various forms. Again, Arianism isn't, uh, is a weed that doesn't die. We see it even today, as we'll talk about shortly. So when it comes to unity and diversity, Arianism reduces the, minis- uh, the mystery by denying unity and equality between the Father and the Son. But here's my question, what's the big deal? We'll see next week. The, literally, the difference between Arianism and Orthodox Trinitarianism is one letter in Greek. Is Christ of similar nature to the Father? In Greek, homoousia, which is heterodoxy, heresy, or is Christ the Son of the same nature? Homoousia, homoousia, homoousia. Should we literally literally care that much about one single pen stroke? And the answer is yes, I'll tell you why. Let me give you a few reasons why the church so adamantly opposed Arianism and viewed it as this destructive heresy. I'll just give you three. There could be a lot more. Number one, you have a big problem if you pray to or worship Jesus in any sense if he isn't actually the one true God. Arianism makes you an idolater for worshiping creation rather than the creator. Number two, there's no actual salvation in Arianism since Jesus isn't divine and thus can't really earn our salvation. And then number three, it ultimately ends up with man reaching up to God. One of the things that we'll see all year is that heresies end up distorting the gospel by making God reach, uh, the gospel which is that God reaches down to man because heresies make creation reach up to God. That's certainly a feature of Arianism. Jesus, who is a creature, reaches up to the creator on our behalf. So where do we see Arianism today? As we'll see next week, Arianism is officially condemned at Nicaea, but it never really dies. In fact, you see a modified, evolved version today in cults like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism and in theological liberalism 
and things like deism, the religion of many of America's founding fathers. In fact, I would imagine many members of Orthodox Christian churches have an accidental Arian view of Jesus. He's like God, but he's not actually God. That's Arianism. Okay, so that was seven early church heresies. We'll talk about others when we discuss Christological heresies in a few weeks, and then a couple of others a few weeks after that. Why are we doing this, though? I want to end uh, with this. For some of you, this may feel uh, like we're just kind of heresy highway patrol. We're just sitting in our cruisers, eating donuts, right? Stopping anyone who would uh, even slightly break some sort of theological law and relishing the opportunity to ticket another heretic. Let me offer another analogy that I think's uh, more fitting. Imagine this sort of active uh, shooter situation. So SWAT officers breach the building, they engage the unsub. That's kind of the role of early uh, church uh, councils and creeds which work to condemn these heresies. Meanwhile, while some officers are in there in the fray, others are outside the building. They're holding back the crowds. They're remaining on the alert. They're warning people of the dangers of head. That's what we hope these lessons accomplish. Remember, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Most heretics don't set out to become heretics. They actually set out to help the church. They want to minimize the mystery, but in doing so, they end up bringing God down to our level. They remove the transcendence, the ineffability, the holiness of God. They reduce him down to something or someone that can be comprehended, that can be fully understood. But as Augustine said, if you think you have comprehended him, it's not God you've comprehended. In other words, this desire to make God more palatable, more relatable, more likable, more understandable, that desire is actually a form of idolatry. It muddles, it mixes the creator and the creation and it seeks to make salvation this upward movement of man reaching up to God rather than what it actually is, which is the high and holy creator condescending to save utterly sinful creatures. Heresy, as we'll see over and over this year, ends up lowering God or raising men rather than preserving the biblical, beautiful biblical picture of this utterly sovereign and utterly good God coming down to save a totally depraved and undeserving people. Let's pray and then we'll do some questions. Father, I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for um, the truth of, uh, of scripture. I thank you that, uh, that faithful men and women have wrestled with these things for uh, millennia. And, uh, and so I pray that you would help us to think clearly about your word so that we don't uh, worship you incorrectly, that we don't conceive of you incorrectly in a way that actually uh, distorts our understanding of you and, and distorts our opportunity for joy. So I pray that you would continue to help clarify our thinking and uh, we pray these things because you're good and you do good. And so we ask in Christ's name, amen.